I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. As the amount of data has increased, we have been able to apply other machine learning methods like deep learning. Erica Menezes, software engineer at Microsoft, explains what deep learning is and the problems it has been able to tackle. We talked about artificial neural networks and how these are the core component in deep learning architectures. Erica also explained how a deep learning project is structured and the different steps in the pipeline. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank Blind for being a sponsor. Blind is an anonymous app for tech workers to discuss, debate, and talk about compensation, corporate policies, workplace harassment, and more. I've used it for over a year and find it very helpful. There are about 50,000 companies active on Blind. Check if your company is there and connect with other employees. Blind is available for iOS, Android, and online at teamblind.com. Go to teamblind.com, download the app. Thank you. Erica Menezes, software engineer at Microsoft, is joining us today. Erica, welcome to the show. Thanks, Irina. It's, thank you for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about deep learning. This is going to be an intro to deep learning show. First, to understand what deep learning is, I want to begin by going over some examples of the problems that deep learning has been able to tackle and solve. Can you list some examples of applications? Sure. So currently, deep learning is used in a lot of fields. One of the upcoming fields is the medical diagnosis. So it's being used for disease diagnosis. It is being used in a lot of image processing fields. So things like autonomous driving and robotics are using image processing to do a lot of their tasks. So those are some of the examples. And in the medical one, is this, for example, related to identifying tumors or something in the images? or So one was actually detecting pneumonia. This was, I think, the data set was released by Stanford where you were taking in chest x-rays and trying to detect 14 diseases. And I think pneumonia was one of the main ones there. And then there is there are other applications also where they are trying to generate CT scans from X-ray images using things like cycle scans. Using this technique, which we'll go into more detail later about what it consists of, problems can be solved in what is called a supervised, semi-supervised, and unsupervised way. Can you explain each of these, what, what it means to solve something in a supervised manner, for example? Sure. So in supervised, in a supervised setting, you typically have these pairs of data where you have the training input and then the label associated with it. And so you have labeled data. So for example, if you have, you know, the chest x-rays that we were talking about, each of those chest x-rays are labeled with the disease associated with each chest x-ray. And if you have a lot of, you know, a lot of data that is labeled, then this is a good use case for using deep learning in a supervised approach. In the case of semi-supervised, what you're trying to do is you have lesser data that is labeled, but you use that to kind of learn the labels for the rest of the data and use that to bootstrap the algorithm. And then there is the unsupervised approaches where you don't have any labels and you're trying to do some kind of either clustering or basically understanding how the data is separated by some features. 
the other technique that deep learning can use to solve problems is unsupervised. What would be an example of a problem that can be solved in this manner? So deep learning uh, used in an unsupervised setting is typically used for learning semantic representations using models like autoencoders where the input and the output is the same. So you're trying to, you feed in an input to the neural network and you tell the neural network to recreate this output. And the goal of this is to learn some semantic representation that has a lower dimension than the input itself. So this can be used for tasks like machine translation, for example, where you're trying to, you feed it in a sentence in one language and try to reconstruct that same sentence. Based on the meaning of it, right? Or So it's trying to learn some kind of semantic, yes, some meaning of that sentence. Okay. And for semi-supervised, what you mentioned was we have fewer data that is labeled and we're using that data that is labeled to generate labels for a bigger portion of the data. Correct. Okay. Let's go into a little bit of detail about what deep learning is. We did a show on intro to machine learning. So this is sort of part two of this AI series of shows. People can refer to that intro to machine learning show if they're not familiar with it. So I want to begin with understanding the difference between machine learning and deep learning. Sure. So I think I'd heard you say this, where deep learning is a subset of machine learning, where deep learning is basically focused on one particular algorithm, the neural networks, and it is a subfield of these different kind of neural network architectures that is used for deep learning. I see. And in machine learning, what you're saying, we have another set of techniques there's also some neural networks. So yes, so neural networks is also part of machine learning, whereas in deep learning, you be kind, so deep is, you know, more than two layers, it's considered deep by some definitions. Machine learning is a more broader, has a more broader set of algorithms. So you have, you know, different, so there are traditional machine learning classifiers like logistic regression, SVM, decision trees that would all fall into the machine learning umbrella. Uh, and deep learning is more focused on just neural networks. I see. And this notion of neural networks, does this come from an inspiration from our brains and things like that? I believe so. But I think, and yes, there is some similarity to, yes, you know, a logistic or one neuron takes in these inputs and produces the output similar to, you know, a single neuron in our brain. But I think the way neural networks in general work is nothing similar to the human brain. Yeah, it's just the single unit that draws an analogy to the neuron in our brain. But overall, I don't think it's fair to draw a comparison to say that neural networks work similar to the human brain. And also there's still people trying to understand more of how the brain functions. Right, right. exactly. So even that's, you know, that's still an active area of research. What you did say that is similar is that what we do know about the brain is we have neurons and they output something which is a signal, I think, right? A signal, correct. In the case of artificial neural networks, which is one term people refer to these computer neural networks, what exactly is that signal being transmitted? Like what does a, a neuron pass on? So in an artificial neural network, what's happening is you're passing in your inputs to these neurons in the artificial neural network. And what's happening there is you have your set of weights 
So you multiply your weights by your inputs and then add some kind of a bias and then pass this through an activation function. Now this can be your sigmoid or tanh or some other kind of nonlinear activation function. And the output is the signal that is then passed through the remainder of the network. What is that signal though? Is it like one number or a text that says something? Like to people that are not very familiar with this, how can they visualize what the neuron is outputting? So I think this is a good question. They are a set of numbers. And then as you get to the end of the network, you try to bring it down to one uh, number in the case of a classification to say, you know, if you're using a sigmoid output and that one number is greater than 0.5, then you say, you know, yes, it is a cat. If you're, you have like a cat versus dog classifier, then that single output can be used to determine whether the classification belongs to one class as opposed to another in case of a binary classification problem. The remaining numbers in the neural network represent, there are the weights and then there are the activations, which are the signals being passed through the network. And what I mean by that is that, you know, neural networks have this forward propagation and backward propagation. And these signals is what's computed during the forward pass. And then the, how the neural network is trying to learn is that if it computed one instead of zero, then that loss is back propagated through the network to update these weights and change these numbers, which represent what the model has learned. And I guess the simplistic way to think about it is, you know, weights associated with features in the traditional machine learning sense. So you mentioned earlier a couple of terms like bias and weights. Right now you're referring to weights. Are these to indicate that something that a signal should be stronger or weaker than another one, or not necessarily? No, so in general, you're right. So a higher weight would indicate, you know, a high, or the output of the activation function, the higher it is, it implies a stronger signal. Yeah, the way that I understand this, for example, in the real world, we, you get stronger signals. For example, if you're looking at the window and you're seeing it, it's raining, it's a strong signal that you're going to get wet when you go outside versus just going by what a person on the TV channel said the day before. So like, I guess that's one way to... Right, right. So yeah, so it is, I think with deep learning also, it's important to realize that, you know, you are not passing in features, you're passing in raw inputs, and the neural network learns these features for you, as opposed to, you know, in traditional machine learning algorithms, where you're actually passing in these features, and you know exactly which weight corresponds to which feature. I see. Whereas in neural networks, it is learning these features, and it is learning these weights for the features that it has learned. Are there particular problems that neural networks are better at performing than these other approaches, for example, that you're mentioning where you're more specific into what you're telling the system, what you're telling it is more important or not? Is there some types of problems that you would say, oh, neural network versus, oh, it's just clustering or... I think when you have a lot of data and for particular kinds of... So, for example, in computer vision... There has been, you know, a lot of recent research to show that neural networks have performed well. And my go-to approach is that, you know, if I know that there is research to support, you know, a model for a particular use case, so for example, you know, classification from images, 
there are pre-trained models available and it, they've been shown to do better than traditional machine learning problems, algorithms. So in that case, I think neural networks are a good or a good go-to algorithm there. And is deep learning and specifically more suited when oh, you, you have a lot of data? Yes, if you have a lot of data, I think that that's a great signal to you know, use deep learning. And it will save you the trouble of actually learning, you know, manually extracting features. You've worked on various machine learning and deep learning projects. I want to talk a bit about this so people get an idea of what is involved in these types of systems and problems. One of them that you worked on is music generation. Another one is natural language processing. There's another one involving emojis, which I thought was very interesting. Throughout these projects, what have you identified to be the components of it? So with most of these projects, I think the three main components are your data set itself, your input representation, and then the model architecture. And using, you know, depending on the problem. So for example, in the music generation project that I worked on, I found a data set that helped me feed it to this neural network. So the format that I was using was a MIDI format. And so the raw data was in MIDI. And then my input representation was a piano roll, which is basically a 2D matrix of notes versus time that is then fed to this neural network. And then is the model architecture. So in this case, I used something called a sequence-to-sequence model, which has an encoder and decoder structure that allows us to capture. So in music, you want the several notes or the notes that are being played to have context of several notes in the past. And sequence-to-sequence models are able to capture this using you know, LSTMs or RNN cells. Let's talk a bit about this in more detail. The three main components that you mentioned were the data set, the input representation, and the architecture. Like you mentioned, you found this data set Is it easy right now to find data sets? I definitely believe so. So I think in a lot of cases, there are data sets that are available more for research rather than commercial purposes. But if you are trying to, you know, familiarize yourself with algorithms, then there are definitely a lot of data sets easily available to play with. And you said this data set that you found was in MIDI format. Can you just explain at a higher level what this means? the MIDI format? Sure. So the MIDI format is this digital format that is basically instructions to an instrument telling it what notes to play and when. So for example, for the piano instrument, it will tell it, you know, at this time I want you to play note 60, which is a note C or, you know, note 64, which is note E. So it's basically these instructions telling the instrument what to play. Now this is MIDI is is one of the formats where it may contain semantic concepts like these notes and then time signatures and key signatures as opposed to, and it is highly compressed, meaning it is of the size is very small for a given music file. On the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, heavier formats like WAV and MP3 that don't have these semantic concepts of what is a note or what is a time signature and contain the raw audio itself. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this format you're saying has the semantic concepts embedded in it. So that's the first step, the data set. Then you mentioned you proceeded with this matrix that maps notes to the time. I guess it would be a note and the time that it appeared on. Exactly. Is that part of the 
step number two, input representation. Right. So I think, yeah, as part of the input representation, there's definitely this pre-processing, the data pre-processing that's involved to get it into that particular representation. Was there a particular reason why it's mapped in notes and time? So this is a common format that's used in this space. But the reason why it makes sense is that when you want to feed in the inputs to your neural network, you're feeding in ones and zeros. And so if you have these column vectors of where one represents a node being on at that point in time, it's a convenient representation to feed into the neural network and encode that music data. If we're dealing with, so this is in case of music, but for example, in natural language processing, what would be those ones and zeros representing? So in NLP, you know, earlier bag of words was a common approach. So you have a dictionary of all the words that occur in your text. And maybe you have, you know, another token for any unseen word. And then you create this bag of words v vector with ones representing a word that has occurred and zero for all the other words. Now, commonly, there are a lot of embedding approaches that you can use instead. And what these embeddings do is that they capture the semantic representation of the word itself. So, for example, using these semantic representations, it's easy to measure similarity between similar words. So what you're saying, embedding is just a an extension of bag of words, I guess, or a more specific approach that captures the meaning of the word itself, meaning that it would indicate if a word is present, but also words that are related to it. They're all packaged together. Right. So I think a good way to think of it is that the bag of words is very sparse. The word embedding is more dense. And so instead of you have this vector and instead of just zeros and ones, you have these float numbers representing, you know, in some high dimensional space, what these words are. And if you were to, you know, visualize it, then you can kind of see the clusters of how similar words are closer to each other than, you know, antonyms, for example. Right. So we're talking about how what you need to give to the neural network is ones and zeros. In the case of music, of the music project, it's a note being present in time. That would be a one. And for NLP, is if we go with a bag of words approach, a one would be this word is present in this text. What about for images? What can those ones and zeros represent? So for images... Uh, when you're reading in an image, you are basically reading in the RGB values for that image. So it, it, images, you can have it in either one channel or three channels. If it's three channels, it's RGB. Which is red. Red, green, blue. Yeah. And if it's one channel, then it's grayscale. And basically, these are the numbers there represent, you know, how dark and or how light a particular pixel value has. So it's at a pixel level. Okay, got it. So let's resume back to the music generation project. We have our data represented in notes against time. How was this data transformed in the sense of what technologies did you use to you know, process this audio? Like, Are there particular languages that are suitable for this and things like that? Sure. 
So for most of, I think for a lot of data pre-processing, Python is uh, the best language. And what I used was the Python MIDI library. But there are other MIDI libraries in Python that you could use. And this makes it uh, very convenient to actually parse the MIDI file and extract, you know, the notes and any other kind of information that may be there about that file. So time signatures and key signatures are optional, but they may be there. And this is easy to parse using Python MIDI. And for the next step, which is step number three, which involves the architecture, earlier you mentioned this sequence-to-sequence model that it's suitable for this. Does this music generation problem have to be approached in a sequence-to-sequence model or not necessarily? So this model is one way to use for this problem, but there are other architectures that you could use. This is motivated by some existing research that I came across and which is why I decided to use this particular architecture. And I think the way I was trying to formulate the problem was, say, if you were a human and you were to play a few notes, then could the computer generate the next few notes that made musical sense for the notes that you had played? And so I modeled it as a sequence prediction problem, which is why sequence-to-sequence networks were a logical choice. What does it mean, sequence-to-sequence? Or for example, is there an alternative sequence to something else? So I think so. sequence-to-sequence models come in a lot of flavors. There is one-to-many, there is one-to-one, there's many-to-many, and the many-to-many can even have, you know, the outputs be... Uh, with direct correspondence to the inputs or all of the outputs depend on, you know, all of the inputs. And in this case, uh, what how I was trying, or I think a, another great example is machine translation. So if you're looking at, say, English to French, then the number of words in the English sentence may not be equal to the number of words in the French sentence. And the orders of the words itself may not be the same. So in this case, in that kind of a problem, you want to feed in all of the inputs, then use this, you know, some kind of encoding that the encoder gives you and then feed it to the decoder that can actually produce the French translation. So similar to that, that's the approach that I took for the music as well. And I was reading one article that you wrote about this project where you mentioned RNNs were suitable for this task. Can you... Explain what an RNN means. So an RNN is a recurrent neural network, which is basically adds the time step dimension to a normal neural network. So in a normal neural network, you are passing in inputs and you get in outputs. Whereas in a RNN, you pass in an input at a time step. And this, the output of that is used as the input for the next time step and so on, and this is continued. So RNNs enable you to capture this time sequences and context of things that have happened in the past. Yeah, another application that I think of this is, I guess in finance, if you're analyzing stocks, you could consider this time component about how it's been doing previously or something like that. No, I think that is possible, but it all depends on how you encode your data. Yeah. Exactly. And another thing mentioned, so we talked about recurrent neural networks, how they add this notion of time to it. You also mentioned in this article LSTMs. What is LSTM? Sure. So LSTM is a special kind of 
recurrent neural network and LSTM stands for long short term memory. So RNNs have this problem where they have something called a vanishing gradient. And what that means is that they tend to not be able to remember very well things that happened a long time ago. And LSTMs overcome this by using something called the input, output and forget gates. So they have these specialized gates that allow them to remember what to forget and what to remember. And so they are able to capture this context better. So you're saying LSTMs remember what to forget. Can you just repeat that again? Sure. So LSTMs have these gates, the input, output and forget gate, and that enables them to capture Yeah, so they have selective memory. So they are able to figure out what is important and remember that. Remember something from the past, from a long time ago. If it is relevant to the problem, the task. Yeah. I see. Let's talk about the in more detail the technology used for this project. One thing that you did mention for the first two steps, which is data set and input representation, is using Python. There's pretty good libraries for a lot of these things in this field of machine learning and deep learning. What about for the rest of the architecture, for example, the RNN, or in this case, the LSTM that you used, and just the rest of the project? What were the tools that you used? So I think I still used Python. And actually, for all of the deep learning models and architectures, there are these frameworks like TensorFlow, Keras, uh, and PyTorch that have Python APIs. And what I was using was the Keras and using the Python SDK. You've been studying artificial intelligence since your time at Carnegie Mellon, maybe earlier. And what I'm curious of, that was in 2014, throughout these years, in what ways have you seen the tools getting better? Have you seen a change throughout when you first started looking at this field? I think for me, the biggest change has been, or I think something that I've seen is that, you know, research is moving at a much faster pace. And I think it's great to see so many researchers making their code available. So, and, you know, even the deep learning frameworks are getting a lot more mature and they have, you know, all this code that's readily available that you can play with. So I think there's a lot more access to cutting edge research more easily in the last few years. And also what you said earlier, that people have access to models that have already been trained. For example, if there's somebody not working in one of these corporations that has a lot of data, they're not necessarily at a disadvantage because they've been releasing something that's been trained on millions or I don't know how much. Right, right, exactly. And they do not need to, I mean, so th that's one part of it where you have these existing models and, you know, they're also releasing pre-trained models. So you don't even need to do any training and you can use these pre-trained models as featureizers and, you know, get a good solution with few lines of code. What are some resources that you would recommend to our listeners if they want to get started in this area? I think for personally for me, I read a lot of blogs. There is a lot of uh, active research and blogs in this field trying to explain the latest papers. I have also taken uh, two particular courses uh, from Stanford that I found very useful. One of them is 
deep learning for NLP and the other one was convolutional neural networks for visual recognition. So the, these go into the details of, you know, RNNs and uh, convolutional neural networks and gives you a good grasp of the math behind these models. All right. Well, Erica, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great chatting with you today. Thank you, Edina. Thanks to Blind for being a new sponsor of the show. Go to teamblind.com. That's teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees from your company. Check it out.